Last week we finished off at verse 13. We looked at the gifts that God in Christ has, has placed in the church. And it wasn't an ideal place to break off, but that's, that's where we broke off at chapter 4, verse 13. Uh, before I read today's verses, a sort of funny thing happened earlier in the week. I was sending somebody a text message. And I was putting a verse in from Ephesians into the, into the text message and, and, I, and I wrote that, I wrote EPH. And then my, my smartphone auto-corrected it to RPG. Now, do you know what an RPG is? That's an RPG. <laughs> and I thought that's a, nice, that's a nice picture of Ephesians as a, as a rocket-propelled grenade just bringing, bringing truth into our midst. Um, I, I, you know, sometimes your phone auto-corrects things in a good way, and sometimes it does it in a bad way. Uh, but you can always blame it if something goes wrong. Anyway, previously in Ephesus, we had the first three chapters where we saw what God has done in Christ to create a new humanity, to bring people together into one new humanity in Christ. That was the first half of Ephesians. And then chapter 4 started with look at unity, and continued last week, as I mentioned, with the gifts. And we saw that those gifts was not a complete list, but boy, it's a good place to start and to work from. Uh, we saw that the gifts are there to in- equip the entire body of Christ for ministry. And stressed the point that we have permission to fail in the kingdom of God. We have permission to try things, to give them a shot, and to say yes when somebody comes up with, with something they'd like to do. And we also saw that the outcomes of those gifts and those ministries were that the church will be brought to unity and to maturity. Now I'm going to read from verse 14 and the aim today is to get to verse 24. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So Father, we ask that your word will be powerful and mighty in our hearts today, that it will be like that RPG, that it will just be um, a huge impact on us. 
powerful, strong, accurate, that your spirit would move within us this day, Lord, as we think about these words that Paul wrote under the leading and guiding of the Holy Ghost. So, Lord, I ask that you would help me, help all of us, Lord, to understand and to make this real in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we start off with a picture in verse 14 of complete chaos, instability, vulnerability. We have a picture of, it's not a pleasant picture, thankfully most of the kids are out, but a picture of children just being tossed around on the waves of a stormy sea. Complete instability. And, and Paul says, leading on from last week, he says, whenever we, we focus on those things and we mature and we reach unity, we will no longer have this instability. We will no longer be tossed around on the waves of the sea, particularly with respect to teaching in verse 14. There were a lot of false teachers in the early church. There were a lot of false teachers in Ephesus in particular. Paul warned about them in Acts chapter 20. He says, as soon as I go, wolves will come. And he also, years later, as he wrote to Timothy, he again was dealing with false teaching in Ephesus. That's the whole heart of the first letter to Timothy is Paul's instruction about how to deal with false teaching. It was a continual problem. But Paul says the way to deal with it is to seek stability that comes from unity and from maturity whenever these gifts that we mentioned last week function. And he said instead of the instability or the way to deal with it in verse 15, the way to to create stability, the way to put down roots and make things strong is by, and I love this phrase, speaking the truth in love. That's the alternative. So in Ephesians 4.14, chaos, instability, just everything all over the place, blowing here and there at the mercy of the wind. But he says there is, a, there is an alternative. In verse 15, starts off with the word instead. There's another way to do this. There's a, not, there's a different way to live. And he talks about speaking the truth in love. Now, I want, to, I want to give you a sort of a long quote here by John Stott. If you're ever in the bookshop and you don't know what to buy, anything by John Stott is usually a winner. He widely regarded as one, as one of the best, if not the best, expository preachers of the last century. The man would just take a book and go through it and blow your mind. And he's very accessible. But he says in, uh, in his commentary on Ephesians, when, he, when he's talking about truth and love, He said, thank God there are those in the contemporary church who are determined at all costs to defend and uphold God's revealed truth. But sometimes they are conspicuously lacking in love. When they think they smell heresy, their nose begins to twitch, their muscles ripple and the light of battle enters their eye. They seem to enjoy nothing more than a fight. Others make the opposite mistake. They are determined at all costs to maintain and exhibit brotherly love, but in order to do so are prepared even to sacrifice the central truths of revelation. Both these tendencies are unbalanced and unbiblical. When we swing too far to either side, we are out of kilter. He says, truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love. And love becomes soft if it is not strengthened by truth. The two must be held together. 
They must be held together. And what, whenever Paul says about speaking the truth in love, the word speaking is not actually there in the original language. It's been put in there to try and help English readers to understand. What literally the original says is truthing in love. It makes truth into a verb, which is very awkward in English, but that's literally what Paul says. Instead of being blown around, tossed about, you should be truthing in love. So, being a science teacher, I plotted a graph. There's quite a few educational um, themes running through here this morning. I apologize, it's half term, meant to be off duty, but there's all sorts of things that just <clears throat> popped in as we went along. Now, you may have seen something like this before, and hopefully you'll be able to read it on, on the graph, and I'll put it on WhatsApp later so you can see it. On the y-axis, which is the one that goes up and down, at the top it says high invitation, and at the bottom it says low invitation. On the x-axis, which is the one that runs horizontally, it's been a while maybe for some of you, the left-hand side, it says low challenge, and the right-hand side, it says high challenge. This has been taken from the writings of a guy called Mike Breen, who writes a lot about discipleship. So we've got four sections on the graph, known in the maths department as quadrants, uh, depending on whether you're going for high invitation and high challenge, or high invitation and low challenge, or whatever. Now, as I explain it, you'll start to get it. If we go for low challenge and low invitation. Now, when I would say challenge, think truth. And when I say invitation, think love. We're talking about truth and love being held together. And what Mike Breen says is that the love aspect of this is invitation into relationship with people. Invitation. That's what he means by invitation. We create relationship. We create connection. We get to know each other deeply. We build trust. That's invitation. And then challenge, think truth. And he says that if we live in a culture, a church culture that is low on challenge and low on invitation, basically what you've got is boredom or to put it more strongly, death. Nobody knows each other. There's no deep relationship and connection. Our roots don't go down deep with one another. Everything is superficial on the surface. And there's no challenge. There's no growth. There's no mission. There's no movement. It is boring and it is dead. So if we have a culture that's low on invitation, low on love, low on challenge, low on truth, it's just a nothing really. Nothing gets done. Another option is to live in that top left quadrant. That's where we are focusing on, have I got it? Yes, I do. We're focusing, but it's reflecting, with high invitation and with low challenge. We're big on love, but we're not big on truth. Very, very focused on loving each other, on inviting each other into relationship, but not on speaking truth to one another, not on challenging. And that he describes as a cozy culture. This is what small groups can descend into if we're not careful with them. One writer or one teacher actually described this brilliantly as box of puppies culture. Where basically we all get together and lick each other but nothing happens. <laughs> you know? Nobody grows, nobody moves on, nobody develops. 
because there's no challenge. There's no truth being spoken. There's great relationship and there's great love, but there's no challenge. There's no truth. And he says, that's not a good place to be either. Okay, bottom left is really bad. Top left is not much better. We, we're safe and we're enjoying ourselves, but we're not growing. We're not growing. If we are living in a, in a culture that is high on challenge, lots of truth, but not much invitation, not a pile of love and relationship and deep intimacy, what we get is a stressed culture. It's just busy, 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 busy. Meeting, 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 this, 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 this. Too much going on. There's a lot of truth. There's a lot of challenge. There's a lot of movement. But people end up wrecked, stressed, because there's not enough relationship. There's not enough love. We have taken the hand off the invitation lever and we've grabbed the challenge lever and pulled it too hard. Like when you're going to the MOT and they grab your handbrake and nearly pull it through the roof of the car. They yank it up that, that hard. That was yesterday morning's experience. <clears throat> um, what, so what you get is somebody who's pulling hard on challenge, but the, the love is being neglected. The relationship is being neglected. And people then just get stressed and tired and busy. And they're getting things done, but then they're, they're sort of thinking, what, what, what are we, you know, they're just knackered all the time. And they're not getting the joy of, of relationship and intimacy with one another. And instead, what, what, what Mike Breed and other people who use different variations of this say is, if we live in that top right, that's where you want to be. That's where we're high on invitation. Relationship is important. Love is important. Intimacy and trust are important. And we're also high on challenge. Because we have that relationship and that love, we can speak truth into one another's lives. We're safe. We're safe. You know, you're not, you're not terrified about saying someone, something to somebody because they know you love them, you care for them, you want their best, and they know that you're not trying to do them harm when you speak truth into their life. And you're not terrified about speaking that truth because you know they will not buck against it, that they will actually accept it. And in that quadrant, you've got discipleship. And I'm obsessed with discipleship because Jesus was obsessed with discipleship. In that quadrant, the magic happens. People are loved, people are challenged, people grow. That's where you want to live. High on invitation, high on love, high on challenge, high on truth. That's where the magic happens. That's where discipleship takes place. That's where you know, you know, the way it was taught to me was like the two levers on a digger. You know, one of them is the invitation lever, one of them is the challenge lever. And the skill of knowing which one do I need to, to give a little nudge on at this point in this relationship, in this journey. Do I need to, to give the challenge lever a bit of a pull? Do I need to ease off on the challenge lever and, and give the, the love, the invitation lever a bit of a pull? You know, you, in, within that quadrant, you'll sort of, you'll wiggle about within it and you'll go up and down, but that's where you want to focus to live. That's where people are transformed. Jesus modeled this as he models everything. He's just always the default perfect example as he was last week with apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, so he is this week. He said to the disciples, come and follow me. Invitation. 
love. Come into relationship with me. Come close to me. Don't just come and listen to me now and again. Journey with me. Eat food at my table. Be with me. Be together. Watch me pray. Listen to me teach. He invited them into close relationship and he said, I will make you that the challenge is going to come. I'm going to change you into something that you currently are not. Both of the things held together, the invitation and the challenge. And from that point on in Matthew's gospel, from that verse in Matthew 4, every single chapter except Matthew 25, every single chapter in the rest of Matthew talks about the relationship between Jesus and the disciples, every one of them. The the, the reason we are here today is because 2,000 years ago, he took three years and invested in them. That's not the exclusive reason, so don't call me a heretic. Okay, I know about the cross and the resurrection and the Holy Spirit. But the reason the church exploded in growth in the first century It's because he took those 12, and even within them, particularly three, and he poured himself into them. He pulled them into invitation, into relationship. He pulled them into challenge of truth, and he discipled them, and they then went and changed the world. It was not always easy. It did not always go well. Peter lopped a fella's ear off one day with his sword in the garden. Malchus, yes. It wasn't always smooth, and they didn't always get it right. But they were safe with Jesus. They were loved. And therefore, he could challenge them. And boy, he did. And he he calls us then to model that as well. He says to the disciples, By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. And the Great Commission, he says, Make disciples, teaching them. So you've got love and you've got truth. You've got invitation into relationship and to demonstrate loving relationship. And you've got challenge of teaching and truth held together. This is one of those verses in Ephesians that when you read it, you realize there is no hope you're going to get to the end of the chapter in one sermon because this is just gold. Truth and love perfectly woven together. So discipleship, again, I haven't maybe stressed it as much as, as I would have done six months or a year ago, but that doesn't mean the, the emphasis has shifted in any way. Jesus said, make disciples. He didn't say build the church, right? He builds the church. He said, I will build my church. You make disciples. That's your job. Let, the, let him do the building and we focus on the disciple making. You know, I, I take great joy in discipleship. There was somebody who, who spoke to me one day in a, in a sort of a prophetic way and, and they read a verse to me and said, this, said, this is just what's in my mind as I'm, as I'm praying for you. And the verse was from 3 John, John's third letter, verse 4. And he said, this is you. He said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. If discipleship is your heart, nothing will bring you more joy than just saying, you know, standing and watching somebody walk with God, watching somebody stand their ground under pressure, watching somebody excel and develop in their gifting. You you look on and you're just like, yes, go. Tremendous joy. Make disciples, folks. It'll thrill you.
And the outcome is, you know, when we, in, back in Ephesians 4.15, as we speak the truth in love, instead of that instability of the previous verse, we will grow to become in every re- respect the mature body of him who is the head. We get language of stability, maturity. In verse 16, we get language of growth and building up. Complete contrast with what we saw two verses ago in the, the wind and the waves. Speak the truth in love. Develop relationships. Develop deep, safe places in the body of Christ. He talks about, Paul loves to talk about the body, the metaphor of the physical body, and he does it in other letters as well. He talks here about every supporting ligament growing and building itself up. Every part. Everybody gets to play. There is no appendix in the body of Christ. There's no little bit that you you can do without. All functions together. And I was reading this week about it and and a guy, I can't remember who, who the source was, but he said, the eye does not lie to the foot when it sees a snake in the grass. Yeah, think about it. If the eye sees a snake, the eye very quickly speaks to the foot and says, move, get us out of here. The body functions together, united, growing up in love. And see the emphasis in this whole chapter on love in in verse 2, bearing with one another in love. In verse 15, speaking the truth in love. And then in verse 16, growing and building up in love. Everything in love, in love, in love. Paul then shifts gears in verse 17. And he says to them that they must no longer live as the Gentiles do. In one level, you can celebrate Paul as being inclusive. He wanted the Gentiles in the body of Christ, passionately. He believed that God was creating one new people from Jews and Gentiles together. And all the old distinctions were gone. So Paul is absolutely inclusive. But it's inclusivity with a a footnote. Anyone can come. Everyone will change. So when he says that, 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 you know, he wants to see the Gentiles and the Jews together in the body of Christ earlier in this letter, it's not that they would continue to live the way they used to live. Come as you are. You won't stay that way. So the door is wide open and the, 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 the bar for entry is low. Anyone can stumble in the door, but the bar for discipleship must be high. Come as you are, but you will not stay that way. In the presence of God, through the word of God, through the working of the Holy Ghost, you will change. And he challenges them and says, you must no longer live the way they do. And I want to, as we draw the words a close in these last few verses, I want you to, to get something. He says in verse 17, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Wrong thinking leads to wrong living. Another little educational theme there on the screen, almost like a wee sneaky chemical equation coming in. Wrong thinking leads to wrong living. Do we take that seriously enough? How we think affects how we live. Paul is absolutely convinced 
that your thoughts will then affect your actions. And if our thinking is wrong, he says that he talks about the futility of their thinking. And he says that that will then lead to wrong living. And look at how he describes it in verse 18 and 19. He says, They're darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. They've lost all sensitivity. They've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. It's a bleak picture, but it all emanates from wrong thinking. The thinking is wrong, and then the behavior that comes and that flows from it is wrong as well. Their, their thinking is futile. It is useless. Futile is one of those words that it just means uselessness. The futility of their thinking. He basically says, your life that comes from your wrong way of thinking is a life of uselessness. Imagine your life being useless. Without purpose, without meaning, you look back on it and you realize all the things you did and all the things you ran after were with no purpose. You just fumbled around with trivial things your whole life. That's the mind, he says, is in these people. And he goes on to say in verse 20, and I'm using a different translation here. I'm using the ESV because there's a lovely phrase in it. He says to them in verse 20, as he addresses them now as Christians, he says, that's not the way you learned Christ. That is not the way you learned Christ. I love that phrase, learning Christ. The word for disciple, back to discipleship, the word for disciple in Greek is mathetes. And the word for learn is mathanos. For any of you that watch the Avengers, that sounds like Thanos' mother, but probably isn't mathanos. And the word that we get in school, mathematics, comes from that same Greek word, to learn. To learn. And I believe discipleship, could then be defined as learning Jesus. 20 years ago and, and a month or two, I decided to follow Jesus. Ever since and for the rest of my life, I am learning Jesus. The decision was made and now the lifestyle of learning him is underway. I just love it. I just want you yeah, to hold that phrase. Discipleship is learning Jesus. That means you should read the Gospels over and over and over and over again. No matter what reading plan you use, I would encourage you alongside that to just be reading the Gospels all the time. I, I really struggle with a presentation of Christianity that jumps from Jesus' birth to the cross and does not take into account his life and teaching, his miracles, his mighty deeds. We need to be immersed in his words, learning Jesus. Then we will grow, then we will change, and we will change our thinking, and we will change our behavior. And Paul goes on as he talks about change. He uses a clothing metaphor in the last few verses. He says in verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self. Take it off. 
because it's being corrupted. It's decaying. It's dying because of its deceitful desires. He says you need to put that off. There's got to be a laying aside of it. And you need to put on the new self in verse 24, which is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. There is a a change to be made. And again, there's a responsibility on us. Don't just be thinking, well, if I just show up and sit around and sing songs, the Holy Ghost will change me. The Holy Ghost will change you. But here Paul is saying there is a responsibility on your part. There is a putting off. There is a decision and there is an action to take off that old garment, that old way of living, and to cast it aside. And likewise, there is a decision and a responsibility on your part to pick up the new garment and put it on. It's not passive. You're active. You're working with the Holy Spirit in this transformed new way of living. Putting off the old, putting on the new. It's a picture of baptism. When people were baptized, as they come up out of the water, they were presented with new garments to put on. And a way of stating, I am going to make a radical change. I will not be the same anymore because of the power of the Holy Spirit that is in me. And because of what Jesus has done for me. But see the responsibility. He doesn't just say stand around and God will take it off. He says you take it off. You take it off. And he doesn't say stand around and God will will pop this onto you. You put it on. God holds it out. You put it on. Must take responsibility for how we live. And it's very easy to then say, well, I couldn't do that. You know, the next time we're in Ephesians, we'll read on through the rest of this chapter and into chapter five. And we might look at the way of living that Paul lays out and think, I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't get my control on my speech the way Paul wants me to. I can't get control on my thought life the way Paul wants me to. But what we've got to do is reflect back because over and over again in the first three chapters of Ephesians, he's talked about power. The power that raised Jesus from the dead in chapter 1. Being made alive in Christ. Being God's workmanship. The power that works in the inner man and strengthens us. We can put off the old and we can put on the new. And how does it happen? Paul does a lovely wee thing here where in verse 22 he says put off. In verse 24 he says put on. And in verse 23 he has the heart of the matter. He says, be made new in the attitude of your minds. What do you do with your mind? You think. Back up to earlier on, how you think dictates how you act. The Gentiles were thinking wrongly and they were living wrongly. Paul says, you've got to be made new in how you think because right thinking leads to right living. How is your thought life? Paul writes in Philippians 4.8 about things we should think on. He says, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I think that is a massive challenge. No matter where we are in that journey of learning Christ, disciplining our minds to say, that is not truth and I'm not going to think on that. I'm going to think on truth. That is not pure and I'm not going to think on that. 
That just covers so much. That is not admirable. That is not lovely. I'm not going to think on that. I'm going to choose, again, responsibility with me to choose what I'm going to think on. Our minds can be an absolute riot at times. Just a riot of thoughts, of fears, of lies, of doubts, and that discipline of of saying, that is not true and I'm not going to think about it. I don't know what, whether you do this or not, but there's times I'll find myself turning something over in my mind and then after 10 or 15 minutes I'll think, I don't even know if that's true. <laughs> Why am I thinking about that? Why has that got such a hold on me? I don't know if it's true. Get out. <laughs> and choose instead to focus on what is true. What do I know is true? I'm going to focus on that until I know more. We are renewed in the attitude of our minds. And I think how that happens is by learning Jesus. By munching on the Gospels day after day after day. And learning him. Being in that school. We've got all these wee educational themes coming in today. But being in that school. In that place of learning with him. Where discipleship can happen. With him and with others where we have a huge focus on that which is true and a huge focus on loving one another. We learn Christ in that community, in that environment. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord, for the truth that is contained within it. I thank you, Father, that I don't know what way Paul wrote this or how he dictated it or... or, whether this all just flowed in one, in one shot or what happened. But Father, it's just immense, the truth that is contained within it. And Lord, some of us might go away today thinking of that little image of invitation and challenge, Lord. And we might determine which, which quadrant we want to live in. We want to live in the discipleship culture. We want to have high invitation and we want to have high challenge. We want to have truth and love held together. Some of us might go away realizing that there are things we need to put off that we haven't put off yet, that we're still allowing to cling to us. And Lord, I pray that we would understand that that new garment you offer us does not go over the top of something else. The old has to come off. And Lord, I pray we'd also cling to that picture of discipleship as learning Jesus. That's literally what the word means. Learning him. He is the content of the lesson. He is the teacher of the lesson. He is the very classroom where the lesson is learned. We want to become more like you, Jesus. We want to be disciples. We want to make disciples. Lord, I pray that you would put it deep within the culture of this church that we would be a disciple-making church and that everything else would flow from that Mission would flow instinctively from disciples. Love would flow from it. Truth would flow from it. Lord, help us. Help us in our thought lives, Lord. Help me. Help every one of us. Not just in terms of sin and purity of thoughts, but just in our ability to hang on to things that we don't even know if they're actually true. Lord, help us to discern that. Help us to chase away those things that would torment us. 
and help us to focus on the truth. Lord, build your church. Bless the wee ones today, Lord, and those who serve them and love them and minister to them, Father. Build your church, Lord. Bless those who are away this weekend for a rest. May they get it and may they hear you. Amen.